Hello and welcome to episode eight of the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Ollie Smith, online producer here at New Model Advisor, and I'm pleased to say I'm joined once again by Jack Gilbert, senior reporter here at New Model Advisor. Hi, Jack. Hi, Ollie. Now, the good news this week is that we'll be talking about bad news. Yes, we'll be talking about the lows uh, and slight rebounds of the markets with Frank Talbot, who's the head of investment research at CityWire. Which will be great. Um, and later on, I'll also be talking to Louise Dolan, financial partner at communications consultancy Camarco, about how PR firms handle bad news and what IFAs who have gone it alone should do in a crisis. But first, Jack, it is, of course, time to play who's hot and who's not. Jack, who is hot this week? This week, I think Elon Musk is quite hot. Of course. L- literally hot because he's been selling lots of flamethrowers and also mastering a, a, a rocket launch, which seems to be somehow revolutionary and is going to change the world and the way we travel and space travel and all kinds of things. So so someone who was definitely hot this week, I'd say, was, was Elon Musk. Did you watch the launch? I did not watch the launch. I had a friend who uh, dipped out of a quiz that I was in uh, to watch it on her phone. I didn't quite realise what was going on at first, but she came back and she was enthusing about everything that had happened. And I watched the video of the two uh, booster rockets yeah. coming back down to, to land to their landing pads, and I just thought, actually, this gives me a degree of hope uh, about the future. You know, if there are people like Elon Musk doing this kind of thing, that maybe we can tackle some of the big big issues in the world. Um, so, yeah, to- totally agree. Elon Musk, so hot. One person I'd like to add who I think is extremely hot uh, at the moment is Rachel Reeves, MP. Uh, she seemed to be uh, very much leading the way on the um, Joint Select Committee investigation into Carillion. Um, I don't know if you saw the video, but there was a sort of BBC summary in which she was absolutely uh, taking the former chairman, Philip Green, and um, various other colleagues of his, and indeed the, the um, former finance director, Zafar Khan, to task over everything that's happened with the company. It was um, pretty brutal, if I'm honest, and I wouldn't want to have been those people sat in front of her, but it was absolutely brilliant TV. Um, and I think it shows exactly the sort of politicians that we need in Parliament, um, holding the powerful to account. So um, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, Rachel's killing it. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, Donald Trump, not hot. So yeah, on on my not hot list this week is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And that is because of the uh, stock market correction. Mm -hmm. We saw saw about a 4.5% drop in in stock in the US uh, equities last week, or this week, sorry. Uh, And of course, Donald Trump is a man who's been taking credit for the stock, stock market rises for the last year on a very consistent basis. So he's not looking so hot now. We're seeing a bit more turbulence, a bit more bit more shudders in the markets in the US. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but the way it played out on live television was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, yes. You had Fox News basically breaking off from its coverage to announce that this uh, sort of market correction was happening. It's coverage of Donald Trump saying, talking about how great the economy was. Yeah, exactly. And I just kind of think, you know, this is this is peak post-truth, is it not? You know, yeah. the media and politicians completely odds with each other. But, um, you know, it makes you thankful for people like us, Jack, doesn't it? Um, it does, it definitely <laughs> does, Ollie. Good stuff. So it's been one of the most turbulent weeks for the markets in recent years. And joining me to make sense of all this, we have none other, none other than CityWire's head of in- investment research, the brilliant Frank Talbot. <laughs> Thanks. Very, uh, very honoured to be invited on the uh, NMA podcast. I'll be honest, I didn't know we had a podcast until you called me up. Well, you should really? you should have known about the podcast, Frank. Where have you been? <laughs> um, so Frank, this correction, what's what's been what's this all been about? 
I mean, the, the big picture is inflation and uh, people getting really worried about it. But I would say it's been a long time coming. Uh, we've had a bizarrely, an eerily calm period for markets. Mm. And I haven't really spoken to anyone within the industry for the past year that hasn't said that both equity markets and fixed income don't look really expensive. But why now? What's what sparked it, do you think? I mean, I, I think it's a confluence of events. I think the primary one for me would be obviously the, the yield on the 10-year US and uh, inflation numbers coming out of the US, which look like we're finally getting to a state where inflation is coming back. You might think over the past few years inflation has been returning, all the headlines suggest that. But people have been fairly comfortable with the rate of growth that we've got and the level of inflation that we've got. So comfortable, in fact, that the the Fed has uh, started tapering its quantitative easing. Significant moment for financial markets. Also a really precarious moment for financial markets. So the bears are going to lose their Goldilocks uh, moment? Yeah, I mean, I think the big picture here is we're probably entering a new norm where we don't have such a calm market. I mean, if you know what the VIX is, it's been talked about a lot this week. It's what they call the fear gauge. They love to romanticise it. <laughs> but basically, you're looking at how much people are hedging against uh, futures on the S&P 500. And they weren't at all, really. They thought it was going to go up. There were a few people betting against it, and that's what that measure is looking at. And it was under 10, um, which is a significant moment. It reached an all-time low on Black Friday of 9.14. Obviously, the, the figure won't mean much to anyone that doesn't look at it the whole time. But that was, I mean, it's exceptionally low. The S&P 500 has two back-to-back -back years of 20-plus percent gains. Are we in a situation where the world is that great? And bear in mind, that comes on the back of, since the post-credit crisis period, just years and years of the S&P 500 just trucking away, up hundreds of percent, like an emerging market would, but with no volatility. I was looking at stats from last year that suggested that uh, the equity market was only just a bit more volatile than the bond market. And around the same as these sort of alternative, liquid alternatives products that try and limit volatility. So they were, they were comparable. Yeah. I mean, you talk about volatility here, Frank, and obviously quantitative, the end of quantitative easing is obviously so crucial to this. Uh, I, mean, I mean, do you think we've ever had a, a, a moment for, for financial markets more, more significant than what we're about to see with this rollbacking or the rollback of, of some of this quantitative easing? I think that's probably blowing it slightly out of proportion, but um, it's definitely a big moment for markets because the central banks aren't going to be buying their debt in the same way that they have been for so many years. And they're not going to be pumping liquidity into the system, which has been really accommodated for asset prices, which is part of the reason equity markets have risen as fast as they have. Uh, I would say it's the spectre of inflation is more of an issue because inflation goes up, interest rates go up. And that's the only real mechanism we've got to control it. And that's why people have sort of shit the bed a bit because they're worried that this, this, this figure from the States is so meaningful, real wage growth going on in the US market, something we haven't seen in the post-credit crisis period. And there's nothing scarier than inflation when it's unchecked. We're taught that that is the worst thing. I mean, everyone goes back to the Weimar Republic, and obviously it's, you know, it's, not, it's not really applicable in the modern day. But no one really knows what's going to happen at the end of quantitative easing. And we're at the end of quantitative easing. Central banks aren't going to be as accommodative. Whether or not the new Fed chair, Jay, Jay Powell, comes in and actually after this sort of mini tantrum, I'm calling it a tantrum because I haven't got a better word to, to borrow a phrase, uh, 
whether or not he's actually going to have the stones to, to come out and raise interest rates to, to keep inflation unchecked. Yeah. What I, I was welcoming the, the sort of rise of yields. I think that was a good thing. That's what we need. 35-year-plus bull market fixed income where yields have just gone down and down. Obviously, it moves inverse to price. So as they go down, the bonds you hold become more and more valuable. That needs to change. I think it's a huge risk and half of the world's invested assets are in, are in bonds and half of them are in equities. And there's this sort of binary approach. So I was welcoming it sort of going up gradually as the Fed stops buying. US tax cuts are another a big reason for this because the Fed needs to issue more bonds to make up for the deficit in tax revenue that they're not getting. The government needs to do that. So I was welcoming it. But what's strange is that as soon as when markets started to realise oh, we've, got, we've got a problem here, they immediately went back to buying bonds, what they know, this sort of binary approach to markets. Is that any safer? I would argue not, particularly not. If inflation is real, then interest rates are going to have to go up. But if interest rates go up really fast, then you've got a situation where that starts impacting upon the, the level at which companies can borrow. So therefore, that's why equities have also fallen, because it could have a harmful effect. You could sort of bleed the life out of the recovery we've got. So obviously, we've seen you know, the, the spectrum of inflation, as you, as you described it, in, in America. Do you think we have the same spectre in the UK? Well, inflation definitely rising in the UK, probably faster than it is in the US. And although the last data point which came out suggested that it's not quite that bad, it's definitely here. It's definitely around. Our, our economic growth and economic activity isn't at the same level as the US or indeed you know, the Eurozone predicted to be, or even China or wherever. So we are certainly at risk. One thing in our favour is that our currency strengthened against the dollar quite significantly in the past few weeks, even though it's, it's falling at the moment because of what's going on. Interest rates go up in the US, currency becomes more valuable, and therefore that's what's going on. But still, we're at a level where it's 1.4 to, to the pound, which is good. So you're not going to be importing as much inflation as you once were, sort of 10% less from the US. But if they've got loads of inflation, you're still importing inflation, and it's still a concern. And this, this volatility we're seeing the last week or so, we haven't seen it for, for a number of years now. Uh, I mean, do you, where, what do you think that tells us about where we are in the economic cycle? I mean, it's a difficult question because, as I said, we're at this really precarious moment where we turn the taps off with quantitative easing and, and we enter the sort of great unknown, which is the next period. I, I would anticipate we go through a period that's fairly flat right now for markets. I, d I don't think economies are looking good, but are they really good enough for us to have had the run that we have had? I doubt it. Emerging markets lagged for a long time, have had a glorious 18 months. I'd say that that was probably justified. They were probably looking really cheap, but US economy less so. The UK with other issues with Brexit obviously being perversely good for, for our stock markets. And how do you think fund managers are going to react to this rank? So I think this is obviously going to be interesting. We won't know for quite some time, but I think if fund managers have been doing what they're saying, they've been seeing this coming for some time, they've been expecting volatility, they've almost been welcoming it. They, sh they should have been taking risk off the table, they shouldn't have got burnt as badly as the markets have. Now obviously I say this today and we've had a huge recovery in, in markets. I passed uh, one of the editors on the way in, Dan Grote, edits our money channel. He was saying he bought Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust on Friday, down 6% at the start of the week, up 6% today. So things appear to have gone pretty much back to normal. But at the same time, if fund managers were predicting this, 
and they were expecting a little bit of volatility, they should have treated it as a buying opportunity to enter into positions that they thought were too expensive beforehand. Now obviously a 4 or 5% correction isn't massive in the scheme of how much we've gone up, but I, I would expect, you'd hope fund managers would have done pretty well. Thanks guys, that's great. Here to discuss bad news days with me is someone who's had over 20 years experience in finance and has worked with everyone from BlackRock, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs and Coots to Sanlam, Suffolk Life and Smith and Williamson. She's currently a partner in financial services at communications consultancy Camarco, which is where I and many other journalists have gotten to know her. It's Louise Dolan. Hi Louise, thank you for joining us. Long time no see. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good stuff. So we're here today to talk about bad days, bad days in the, in the newsroom, bad days in PR. Run me through it. You're a communications expert. What's it like to have a bad day in PR? Well, I mean, every day in PR is different. Okay. Uh, you never know when you pick up the phone what's mm. going to be at the end of it. Um, they're good and bad. I think communications experts do come into their own on the bad days mm -hmm. because it's when actually you need to be open, honest, you need to be able to communicate. Um, it could be anything from a leak that's happened, perhaps of a business closure. We did um, a lot of that during the financial crisis, as you can imagine. Mm. And it, the worst thing for me, I think, in that type of situation would be for somebody to um, be in their car driving to work and hear that the firm that they're working for is closing or merging. Mm -hmm. So all of that pre-planning and making sure that uh, all the key messages are there. Mm -hmm. You're open, transparent. I, I can't emphasise that enough. It yeah. really is about that. Mm. That sounds like it's a fairly consistent agenda across sort of communications through time. But what has changed, do you think, you know, since you started? Oh, well, 25 years ago, PR was very different and journalism was very different. The way we communicated was different. Um, there were deadlines. Okay. Uh, today, I would honestly say there are no deadlines because social media, social media has really changed how all of us work. News is very immediate. Mm. And often, you can sit on Twitter and see stories developing as you're sat with clients, mm. helping with a particular situation. Okay. Um, so that's a a real difference that I've noticed. Are you essentially saying that you actually had a bit more control? I think there was more control, um, but I, I also think that how we consume news has changed, mm. and I think how you as um, professional journalists, how you write the news is very different now. Mm. I think there were a lot more thought pieces, so a particular issue would be looked at in depth, whereas mm. now um, what you probably get out 10, 12 stories mm. just in the morning, but they are well, much smaller. <laughs> yeah. We would hope. But they're also much smaller. Okay. Um, so you're delving just into the top with the headlines. And then I think perhaps um, people then read perhaps NMA to pick up uh, mm. more detail yeah. on how it's actually impacting. So I think it's much more about news now rather than perhaps mm. reporting as it used to be. Interesting. Um, very keen to talk about our IFA audience. Mm. Obviously, we have lots of readers out there who might be listening to this um, who have gone independent themselves. They've maybe left a bigger business to set up by themselves or are considering doing that. Um, we've run various stories recently that perhaps given advisors a bit of a bad day or maybe provoked a lot of comment and discussion. 
Um, can you put yourself in the, in, in, the, in the shoes of an advisor who's perhaps um, dealing with a bit of a communications crisis and maybe give a few hints and tips about messages and agendas? Well, I think, as you know, I started life working for an IFA-only business. It sure. was a pension firm. So I've had a, a lot of dealings with advisors from the large firms mm. through to the small ones. As you say, a lot of them do look to perhaps set up on their own. I think they need to be very clear about what they're delivering these days to um, their end clients. And it's not an easy business to get involved in. I think actually how you get your clients um, is quite difficult. So they might consider doing marketing events locally, perhaps hiring out a room in a local hotel and doing a lot of educational um, work with potential clients mm -hmm. and perhaps with local businesses as well because that can generate a lot of um, new clients coming into them. Mm. In terms of messages, again I think we all consume a lot of news so a lot of people think that they are experts in the financial markets and perhaps around retirement and with things like pension freedoms there's a real opportunity now for advisors to add a lot more help and guidance into that whole process. So not only building up that pension pot, but then actually what do you do at the end? How do you pass on the benefits? And I think knowing your audience is really key and that goes back to what I was saying about what do you want to deliver as an advisor setting up a business? Mm -hmm. Have there been any examples recently? I can think of perhaps a couple you know, of the big corporate um, cases where you've um, You've perhaps been watching the news and you've seen, I don't know, Carillion or BHS dragged in front of a committee and you've, you've been shaking your head and you're thinking, no, that's the wrong message or why are they not focusing on this or that? Or is it just the case that these things are extremely tough and there's no right way to go about it? I think, again, it goes back to actually being honest and open and transparent. And I think that for any business, no matter what size, it is from a one-man band, perhaps IFA up to uh, a multinational, you really need to be honest, put your hands up if something has gone wrong, mm -hmm. and how you're going to rectify it, and then tell people that it has been rectified and move on. Mm -hmm. I think trying to hide things is, is just not an appropriate way to behave. Is there a sense nowadays particularly with the social media angle that you know, no one is above scrutiny because information is everywhere. I think you're absolutely right. There is so much information everywhere and social media means that you're accessing a lot more but you can't always filter what's right and what's wrong on social media and I mm. think that that also you need to do that personally as you're consuming that. Mm. Interesting case study we had a couple of um, was it a couple of years ago, maybe 2016? We had an IFA um, who had a data um, hack, I think, and they were held to ransom with some ransomware. Um, and they came forward to us to sort of say what happened. And um, they actually wrote an article in NMA about it. I don't know whether you read it, but I thought it was a fascinating example of kind of biting the bullet and um, really grabbing hold of uh, the agenda and um, sending out the right messages to clients and to perhaps the rest of the community about um, sharing experience of bad things happening to create a, you know, a better outcome for other people. And we all learn from those mm. situations. And I think you're right, being, again, being open saying what's happened, how you rectified it, perhaps also admitting some things that perhaps weren't right, mm. you could have done better 
helps everybody learn. I think the IFA community, it is a real community and people do want to help. I think sharing experiences um, is so important. So you're in B&Q and you've bought your new drill and uh, you take it home to do the DIY and the drill just, it doesn't work. And you think, oh, B&Q are rubbish. But the way B&Q handle that issue gives you more confidence in them than ever and actually takes your relationship with them to the next level, despite whatever negative thing that's happened. I'm hearing from you that th this is an opportunity for anyone involved in kind of communications and messaging uh, in, a, in the public sphere to, to actually grab hold of the horns and create something better than not just what they had in the status quo, but um, you know, from bad experiences, from data leaks to just customer care on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's, it's from the bad situations that we all learn and, mm. and things improve and processes improve. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. Mm, excellent. Well, Luke, thanks so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. That's the end of another New Model Advisor podcast. I'd like to say thank you to both our guests. Thank you for your time. The only thing left to say is that you can subscribe to this podcast by going to iTunes and searching for New Model Advisor. Join us again next week for more podcast action and there'll be updates about it on our Twitter page. The handle is New Model Advisor.